All right, we're finally getting into the text this morning of Acts chapter 1. But before we get there, as sort of our transition to the word this morning, I want to read from the, the book of Amos. And Amos isn't one of those books that I spend a lot of time in. I don't, I don't know about you, how much time you spend in Amos uh, throughout, throughout uh, the year. But I'm reading through the Bible this year. I'm following a plan just on my own devotions. And, and I've been in Amos over the last week. And I was reading these words from chapter 8, I think two mornings ago. And it just hit me so hard. And it spoke to where we are, I believe, as a body. This is what the Lord warned the people of Israel Through the prophet Amos, in uh, Amos chapter 8, verse 11, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, not a famine of thirst for water, a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Let that sink in for a moment. I'm sending a famine from hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wonder, that's the people, they shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east, from coast to coast. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst for the word of God. I hope that, I hope that aches when you read that. I hope that, that brings uh, up brings you to a place of just thank you, Lord, that we do not live in that time. Thank you, Lord, that we live in a time when we have access to the word and the presence of God through Jesus Christ. And that's what the whole point of this series is. When we're walking through the book of Acts, what we're asking God is how today in 2018 are we supposed to hear you and discern what you're saying and obey you? Jesus says, if you hear my words and you don't do them, you don't obey them, you're like a man who builds his house on the sand. But anyone who hears my words and obeys them will be like a man with a firm foundation. So here's the little blurb for this series. As the people of God, we constantly need to practice spiritual discernment. We think of discernment for big things like when you're choosing which college to go to or you're, you're choosing which career to pursue or whether or not you should move or, or whatever. Discernment should be a part of our lives 24-7. You should be constantly discerning what the will of God is in all matters. How you conduct a conversation, what to engage, what, what activities to do, where to go, how, how to speak to people. This should be how we as the people of God are constantly living, constantly seeking the discernment of God. We are daily faced with decisions, great and small, that require the ability to listen and follow the Spirit and Word of God. As we walk through the book of Acts, we'll be asking some key questions about the process of spiritual discernment. How are the people of God called to make decisions? What role does the Spirit of God play in discernment? How did the early Christians practice discernment? How did the early church make decisions? What role does prayer and the Word of God play in spiritual discernment? What does spiritual community play and discernment. The entire book of Acts is a book of spiritual discernment. 
as we engage the stories and acts, we can learn and grow in our own ability to walk out God-honoring processes of spiritual discernment. So take these questions that you have, take these, these things you're working through in your own life, bring them to the seasonal community groups, and then sit with your spiritual community groups in the homes of one another and share what's going on and seek prayer for it. So bring, bring the things that you need help discerning and bring it to the group and let the group seek after God with you. We should never, as Christians, be making major decisions in isolation. It's blank stares. Let me say that again. We should never, as Christians, be making major decisions, even small decisions necessarily, in isolation. God has designed us in such a way to do this life together which means we need to actually speak to one another and share what's going on and ask for prayer. The last time I was in St. Louis, the search committee had just reached out to me the week before and, and asked me to consider the position officially. So what did I do? What did we do as a family when we were in St. Louis? Well, we prayed together with our friends, with our family. We, we sought wisdom. We sought, we sought direction. We, we asked for insight. We asked for, for uh, if there were any blind spots that we should be thinking about. That could, this is how we, we need to make decisions all, all the time. Ask inviting community. So if you live in a place of isolation, you're blocking off the word of God in a major way in your life. Because he speaks through the people of God together as we seek him. All right, these, uh, this is from my sermon two weeks ago. How does God speak and how do we hear him? This is all from the scriptures. Uh, we hear him through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We hear him through the scriptures. We hear him through spiritual community. We hear him through spiritual service. So as we serve God, we hear him. Um, and an example of this uh, could be, I was talking about this with someone recently. So when Mary and Martha, when Martha's running around serving and Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, we always look at Martha and say, like, that, well done, Martha. We want to be like Martha. Or Mary, excuse me. And Jesus says that. She's chosen the better thing. But Jesus doesn't stay sitting in that seat forever. Because when that time is done, what does Jesus do? He stands up. He walks out of the house. And he starts serving the next place that God calls him. So what does it mean for Mary to continue to listen to Jesus? She gets up and goes with him. If you're not serving how God's called you to serve, you can't listen to Jesus because you're not where he's called you to be. At least clearly. So, so yes, it is sitting at his feet, but sometimes it means getting up and, you know, praying for people or serving people or, or whatever. It's, it's both and. It's always knowing what Jesus is calling you to do, listening and following. And then, yes, the Lord speaks through nature and personal experience. Paul says that man is without excuse. Man is without excuse. This is Romans chapter 1. Because creation has revealed to all people who have ever lived that there is a creator God. All right, but those, uh, the, the nature and personal experience need to be submitted to the, to the scriptures. And then prayer and worship should be a part of each of those things. All right, that leads us to the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, the, in your Bibles, what, what does it title it? Anybody got their Bibles open? What's, what's the title of the book? Acts of the Apostles. So when it was originally written for the first hundred years or so, there was no official title. Um, that, that was the traditional title that was put on it a little bit later. Uh, there is some problem, problems with this uh, title. Um, a better title would probably be The Ongoing Works of Jesus Christ Through the Apostles by the Holy Spirit. 
the, the, the book of Acts is about Jesus. Uh, the book of Acts isn't about people primarily. The book of Acts is about Jesus. And it's about his spirit indwelling his people and what they did. So a more appropriate title would actually be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is part two of the larger Luke-Acts work, which was addressed to the man Theophilus. Uh, the, the book of Luke is a theological biography, and I talked about this on Easter morning, how to read theological biographies. Um, but the book of Acts is a theological history. So when you're reading a theological biography, when you're reading the, the Gospels, you notice it doesn't include, like, where did Jesus go to school? Or what existential crisis did he have when he was 14 that shaped the rest of his life? Right? It doesn't include those things that we would think are important in a biography because they're asking theological questions. And so there's specific things that are included. Historians ask the question, what happened? Theologians ask the question, why? This is key when you're reading the scriptures. What the scriptures are most interested in answering is not how, but why. So we get into all sorts of trouble when we look to the text and try to get how out of it from every single passage. What, what the Holy Spirit was interested in communicating theologically is why. So that's a, when you read, it's, it's a mystery how God created the heavens and the earth. And, and theologians have wrestled and argued and wondered about this forever, right? Was it the day-age theory? Was it literal seven days? Was it millions of years? Was it... Uh, was it um, uh, divine evolution? Was it, there's all, theologians hold all of these different views. The problem is, is that's not actually what the text is concerned with. What the text is most concerned with is why. Why did God create the heavens and the earth? Why? Why are there seven days that he talks about? Why? What does that reveal about the Lord? Why? So when we're reading the book of Acts, as a theological history, what Luke is interested in communicating and what the Spirit of God is interested in communicating is why. Why did these things happen? Why did the Holy Spirit work this way? Why did the apostles choose what they chose? Why did the early church do what they did? All right, so a key question uh, for modern readers is, is Acts descriptive or is it normative? So what that means is when we read the book of Acts, is it simply describing what happened but not necessarily applicable to our lives? Or is it normative? When we read the book of Acts, is that supposed to be normal? Is that supposed to be the way it is for all people, all times, and all places? This is probably the most important question to ask when you're reading a history book in the Bible. Is it normative Or is it descriptive? Let me give you an example of this. When Lot's two daughters get Lot drunk and sleep with him so that they can get pregnant, is that descriptive or is it normative? All right. If you read that as normative, you're going to have some problems. Right? Okay. So this this is a really, really important question for us to ask when we're approaching the scriptures. Because if you read everything as normative and literal in the normative sense, you're going to have all sorts of interpretive hermeneutical problems. Because our daughters should not be sleeping, getting our fathers drunk and sleeping with him to get impregnated. That should not be happening. Rather Rather than condoning that, 
the writer of the scriptures is describing it. In other words, this is what happened. It's not necessarily saying it's good or bad. It's probably saying it's bad through what the scriptures fully reveal. Now, there's all sorts of problems when we draw Old Testament principles into the church by making Old Testament things normative rather than letting them be descriptive. One of the classic instances of this is um, we're, we're in an Anabaptist church, so, so I'll talk about this a little bit. Anabaptists have traditionally been nonviolent by reading the New Testament. They read the New Testament and say, Jesus condemned the sword. He said, love your enemy, pray for your enemy. Don't strike them when they strike you back. Turn the other cheek. Sermon on the Mount. Christians uh, have often gone to the Old Testament and say, well, God, well, the Israelites pursued war, so that's okay. They, they take an Old Testament principle that's descriptive, make it normative, and apply it to the church. There, there's problems with that. And, and I'm not here to speak on just war theory or anything like that. I'm just showing an example of how complicated this is when we, when we approach the scriptures. So we have to be careful. What is normative and what is descriptive? When someone says they give more money than they actually give, should we pray that God strikes them down and they fall dead? That happens in Acts, and we're going to read about that. Is that normative or descriptive? Remember when the, the husband and wife deceived the, the church? With how much they gave? They said they gave everything, but they held some back for themselves? All right, so this is a key question. Is it normative or is it descriptive when we're reading, when we're reading the stories? Here's what, uh, from, from one of my uh, seminary hermeneutics texts, this is by Duvall and Hayes uh, from Grasping God's Word. I thought this was really good. They're speaking about Acts. They say, when it comes to reading and applying Acts, we face one major interpretive challenge that we did not have to deal with when reading the Gospels, even though both are narrative. In the Gospels, we read about Jesus and his original disciples without ever once thinking we will be in that exact same situation. We're not going to get into a boat with Jesus to cross the Sea of Galilee or walk with him through the streets of Jerusalem. In Acts, however, the situation is different. From the Gospels to Acts, there is a major shift in biblical history from the period of Jesus' ministry on earth to the period of the Spirit's ministry through the church. And we, as believing readers, are a part of that Spirit-driven church. So even though we don't live in the the, um, spiritual historical time period of the Gospels, we do live in, the, in this, the age of the New Testament church, which means when we're reading Acts, we can, actually, um, we can actually have those same experiences. We are part of that spirit-driven church. Here comes the tricky part. Should we read Acts as normative so that the church of all time should imitate the experiences and practices of the early church? Or should we read Acts as merely descriptive of what was valuable and inspiring in the early early church, but is not necessarily binding on us today? Without a doubt, this is the most significant issue we face when we learn to interpret Acts. On the one hand, if we read Acts as purely descriptive, then why bother reading it at all? If it's not going to apply to our lives, what's the point? If one, on the other hand, if on the other hand we take Acts as normative, do we have to repeat all the practices of the early church, including rivalries, immoralities, and heresies? Do we have to make decisions by casting lots? Should we read Acts as normative or descriptive? In making the interpretive journey in the book of Acts, we believe that a both-and approach works best. So then the question is, how do you figure out which is normative and which is uh, descriptive? Here are five principles, 
as you read the book of Acts. And Rosa will put these slides up this week uh, with the sermon, so don't, you, can, you can get them off the website later. Number one, look for what Luke intended to communicate and his readers. In other words, what's Luke actually trying to say? That's always a good question when you're reading a book, right? What's the author trying to say? Number two, look for positive and negative examples in the characters of the story. So he's going to include both positive and negative. Not everything in Acts is going to be positive. Some things are going to be negative. Read, number three, read individual passages in light of the overall story of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. This is the most important thing that you can do when you read the Bible. Don't proof text. Don't take a single verse and build an entire theology off of one verse. Look at the testimony of the scriptures and let all of the scriptures influence the one scripture rather than the other way around. You get what I'm saying? All right, let me, let me use an example of this in, in Protestant churches. Who's heard of being born again? Who in here has been, uh, yeah, you've, been, you, you've heard of being born again? I think every hand should be up right now, right? You've all heard of being born again. How many times does that phrase appear in the New Testament? One time. One time. Now, I'm not saying that being born again is not important, but I think it's interesting, fascinating, that our, our particular church culture has put such a major emphasis on the concept of being born again when it appears in one conversation uh, between Jesus and Nicodemus. Now, that's important. That's good. That, and, and there's wonderful things to draw from that. However, what actually appears over and over and over and over and over again in the scriptures that we might ignore? Say by grace, what? Repentance? Follow me. Well done, Paul. Follow me. This command is repeated over and over and over again. Why do we put way more emphasis on being born again than follow me? They're, they're, they work together. Don't hear me exclude the one. I'm not saying don't be born again. By all means, be born again. What I am saying is when you, when you proof text, when you build an entire theology off of a single verse, rather than looking at the greater testimony of scriptures, you get into all kinds of problems. So let God speak through the, test, the full testimony of the scriptures. Amen? Amen? All right. Look for repeated patterns and themes. All right, who's the writer of Luke and Acts? How do we know it? The, no, he doesn't. He doesn't say. The, the book's anonymous. So there, nowhere, nowhere in Luke and nowhere in Acts does it say who wrote it. So um, theologians have a couple of reasons why they think that Luke is the most likely candidate. Um, first of all, uh, it was written by not an original apostle. In Luke 1, it says these are things handed down to us. Um, it was a well-educated author. He was, in Luke 1, he says, I, I investigated the truth by, uh, by going and, and searching He's a participant in some of the events through the we passages in Acts. Um, he knows the Old Testament and the Greek Septuagint. He has an excellent knowledge of social and political situation of the day, and he obviously thinks very highly of the Apostle of Paul. All right, there's this shift in the narrator's voice that, that goes from they to we at four places in Acts. It's really interesting. The whole beginning of the book is they, 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 they. And then all of the sudden, with no explanation, in Acts chapter 16, it says we. Isn't that interesting? And then it goes back to they, 
And then it goes back to we. And then it goes back to they. And then it goes back to we. And it happens four different times where the author says we in chapter 16, 20, 21, and 27 through 28. Of the possible candidates, the people who could have been with Paul in the we passages that fulfill all the other requirements, the most likely person is Luke, uh, the the physician. So um, this is also attested by the church fathers, uh, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and others mention Luke as the writer. But no one knows 100% for sure, but that's, that is probably the best guess. All right, finally. Finally, let's get into some scriptures. All right, this is Luke 1. Luke, Luke and Acts, when they were originally written, they would have, they would have uh, traveled in the New Testament church together. They would not have been separated. It was only after several hundred years that Luke was separated from Acts and put with the other uh, three Gospels. And then the church began uh, to pass around collections of the four Gospels together and Acts as its own separate thing. But the the New Testament Christians, the, the original first, second, third generation, they would have read Luke and Acts as a single work put together. We separate it and we miss some because Luke goes straight into Acts and we'll see some overlap. Luke chapter 1, he says, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Why was the book of Luke written? It's right there. So we can be certain of the truth of everything we've been taught. All right. Skipping to Luke 24, which overlaps with Acts chapter 1. This is the end of Luke. He says in verse 45, this is Jesus. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that his message would be proclaimed in his authority of his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, there is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all these things. And now I will send the Holy Spirit, just as my Father promised. All right, listen to this. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Don't try to do a thing until the Spirit clothes you with power. Don't try to fill the mission until the Spirit fills you. Then Jesus led them to Bethany, and lifting his hands to heaven, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. So they worshipped him, and then returned to Jerusalem, filled with great joy. And they spent all of their time in the temple, praising God. Acts chapter 1. In my first book, that's Luke, I told you, Theophilus. Theophilus means friend or beloved of God. You see Philo in there, Philadelphia, and Theo in there, God, Theophilus. Um, we're not sure if this was a specific person or like a person's uh, proper name or if it was a title for a person. So Theophilus could just be like saying uh, uh, father in the faith or you know what I mean, something like an appropriate title. Theophilus is probably the person who paid the money for Luke to be able to do all the travels and write the book. He's probably the patron for Luke Acts. That's who scholars think he is and they think he was probably a new Christian. All right, in my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach. So what's Acts about? 
what Jesus continued to do and teach. In the first book, it was about what he began to do. In this book, it's about what he continues to do. Verse 2, until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift of the gift." The gift he promised, as I told you before, John baptized you with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. One of the ways we know something is extra important in the scriptures is when it's repeated. He just said that at the end of Luke. Don't move until you're filled with the Spirit. Acts chapter 1. Don't move until you're filled with the Spirit. Verse 6. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Look, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. I want to point out one thing in this real quick, because I think it's very important. It's hard to translate the the grammatical uh, part of the Greek in this. It's it's a construction that's as if uh, the author is saying, on one hand, blah, 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 but on the other hand, da, da, da. So that's that's sort of the the way that the grammar structures. So uh, a way to translate it would be, on the one hand, The apostles asked Jesus, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But on the other hand, Jesus replied, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. But here's what it is for you to know. You will be filled with power to be my disciples and my witnesses to all the nations. The reason why I want to highlight this is every single generation since the time of Christ to today has thought that he would return in their generation. Right? Every, every generation of, 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 of Christians. And, and we should long for the return of the Lord. And we should seek the return of the Lord. And we should work for the return of the Lord. And we should pray for the return of the Lord. And we should labor for the return of the Lord. But when, when that time is, will be a mystery until it happens. What he is interested most for his disciples is this. Listen, church. He's not given us power for that. What has he given us power for? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We should live and die for this. To witness for Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. This is where the power of God resides in you, church. If you're looking for the power of God, it's this. To be his witness to the ends of the earth. Verse 9. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained watching, as they strained to see him, rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? 
Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So these, uh, these two men are angels, and the significance of the two is the Old Testament uh, law, which says if there's two witnesses, it's binding. So these two uh, angelic witnesses are saying in a binding witness, in the same way that you saw Christ go, he will come. Be at peace. He's coming. Verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of a half mile. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all met together and were constantly united, or the better translation is devoted. They were, they were constantly devoted to prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. One of the things we want to look for is repetition in the book of Acts to know what is normative. What does God have for us? All right, this word devoted, proskartereo. Everybody say proskartereo. Very good. It means uh, to be steadfastly attentive to, to continue all the time, to strive after, to persevere and not to faint. That's what that word devoted to means. This word appears in 10 verses in the New, Te- New Testament. Seven of these verses are in the book of Acts. So this, wor- this word devoted is going to appear seven times in the book of Acts. In five of the 10 verses in the New Testament, the term devoted is used in connection with prayer. So half of the times that this word appears in the New Testament, it is in conjunction with prayer. Be devoted to prayer. This connection between devotion and prayer actually uh, repeats several times throughout the book of Acts. Be devoted to prayer. Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, devote yourselves to prayer. All right, so they were devoted to prayer. During this time, about 120 believers were there in one place. Peter stood up and addressed them. Brothers, he said, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit speaking through King David. Judas was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. Now Judas had bought a field with the money he received for his treachery. Falling headfirst there, his body split open, spilling out all of his intestines. The news of his death spread to all the people of Jerusalem, and they gave the place the Aramaic name Keldama, which means field of blood. Peter continued, This was written in the book of Psalms, where it says, Let his home become desolate with no one living in it. That's Psalm 69, 25. It also says, let someone else take his position. That's Psalm 109, verse 8. Both of these psalms are about the enemies of God, receiving the punishment of God. So Peter takes these psalms about the enemies of God, receiving the punishment of God, and applies it to this situation. Verse 21. So now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus, from the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken up from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. I kind of read fast over it earlier, but there's 120 people in this room devoted to prayer. Men, women, and children. All who have been following God. This isn't, this is a group like this. This is a group like, just like this. In an upper room, about this many people devoting themselves to prayer. And they're looking around, Peter's looking around and saying, one of you who has been with Jesus from the time he was baptized to seeing his resurrection needs to fulfill 
the empty place of, of Judas. Now this is important to Peter because Jesus had promised that the 12 disciples would sit on 12 thrones uh, with, with Christ. So what if one of the thrones is empty? He wants to, he wants to fill that, that, that number. Um, so they begin to pray. They continue to pray. So as they nominated, so they nominated two men, verse 23, Joseph called Bersabbas, also known as Justice and Matthias. Then they all prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which one of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in the ministry, for he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other eleven. So what they would have done probably is taken two stones and carved the initials or written, scratched the initials onto the stones, put them in a bag and shook the bag until one of the stones popped out. And then they would have said, that's the person. All right, here's a question for you. Is this normative or is this descriptive? The, the casting of lots. What's that? Both? <laughs> Maybe. So, so I, I, hear, I hear both. This, it's a good question. It's a, it's a legitimate good question. Should New Testament Christians, should we today be making decisions by casting lots? They did it. Now, what has not happened yet? The Holy Spirit. What are, what are we going to read about next week in Acts chapter 2? Is there another occurrence of casting lots in Acts? Nope. So they're in this weird in-between space. Jesus has resurrected from the dead and ascended into the heavens, been crucified for them, and they're in this liminal space of waiting, waiting for the Spirit. And they, and they cast lots in the waiting. Now, the game is about to change for them and for us forevermore. Because in Acts chapter 2, Brother Brandon Hanks is going to be here teaching on it, and you'll be blessed by that next week. Praise God. He's going to be teaching on this. The Spirit of God's going to fall on his people and indwell them with the power of God. And never again, all the many decisions that the New Testament faces um, in all the rest of the New Testament, man, they've got some crazy decisions to make. Where do we go? What do we do when we're being stoned to death? Who do we pursue? How do we preach the gospel? What do we say when we're standing in front of kings and rulers? When Paul's standing in front of Caesar, what's he supposed to say? All of these decisions, all of these searching, all of the question, it comes by the Spirit of God and the people of God searching the Word of God together. Brothers and sisters, we can live in the same way today. Amen? We can live in the same way. The same power resides in us because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sat down at the right hand of the Father and said, it is finished. And he's still interceding for you and I just as he did for his servant Paul, just as he did for Peter, just as he did for John, for Simon, for for all these great men and women of the faith. Jesus is empowering us through the Spirit in the same way today. So when we make decisions, this is why we chose the book of Acts for this. When we make decisions, we go to the Spirit of God with the people of God, with the Word of God, and we seek the will of God. Team, you can come up. Let's pray and just let that sink in for a moment. I'd invite you in this uh, short time of reflection to maybe bring to mind 
a couple of decisions, a couple of things that you're facing at this time in life that you need, <laughs> you desperately need God's help in making these the decisions, to know which way to go, to know how to deal with that relationship that's so painful, to know how to handle the suffering of the loss of a friendship or the sickness of a loved one. We all have these decisions, so bring, let God bring one or two of those decisions to mind and just put it, put it in front of God and say, just, Lord, I invite you to speak about this. I need your, your, your direction. I need the discernment of God to help me to obey you in this situation, to know how to walk. And I would just invite you in the coming weeks, maybe through the seasonal groups or just with your own family or just with friends or, or how, however you want to go about this, to bring those difficult things and bring them out of the darkness and bring them into the light of community. Don't allow the enemy to blackmail you into doing things alone. He's a liar and he hates you. He wants you to make decisions and face difficult situations in isolation and alone. Don't let him have that power over you because he doesn't. In Christ, he has no power over you. So don't be deceived by that. Take the decision out of the darkness, out of isolation. Bring it to the light. Bring it to the community, the fellowship of believers. Bring it, bring it constantly in prayer. Be devoted to prayer. Steadfastly turn towards prayer. God, we give you these decisions we all face. Lord, you know that I have my own share of things that I wish I could just do myself or deal with myself that I just, I need my brothers and sisters to help me. I need you to speak. God, Parker Ford Church as a body, we face questions all the time. What's going to be the focus of this church's mission? How are we going to use the resources you give us? Who are we going to pursue? How are we going to reach our neighbors? These are things that maybe we could do in our own strength. But man, I don't want to do that in our own strength. That's a dead end road. God, we as the people of God need you to be the one who leads us. So we just invite you to constantly speak to us, refine us, teach us. We pray that we would be a people of the word of God. I pray that that the body of Parker Ford would have a hunger and a thirst for the scriptures like they've never had before. Just long for it day and night like David. He writes multiple times, I'm laying in bed at night just thinking about your word. May we be like that, God. May we hunger and thirst for your word. Grow in our knowledge of your word. Grow in our ability to read and understand your word and speak of it constantly. We love you, God. We thank you for your presence. Parkford Church, let's stand and sing together and bless the Lord in closing.